2: We are recording.
3: And yes. And we are still full of <laughs> liturgiae instaurationes.
2: So full. And so, we left off at number two, right?
3: We finished number two, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. But you know what we didn't say? Liturgicae instaurationes. What does that word instauratione mean? The uh,
2: Restoration? Restore? Yeah.
3: Remember, restore all things in Christ is instaurare. Omnia in Christo. Mm-hmm. And it really means more than restore. Refound, like to refound a city. So we're talking Ooh. about this restoration or this renewal of the liturgy and uh, you can't restore it if you're not doing it right. And so this is a helpful guide to doing and it right. You
2: can't restore it if it wasn't being done wrong in the first place. So, well, I, mean, well yeah. I don't know if that's
3: true, but. <laughs> if it hadn't lost its original. There you go. Blender. Somebody asked me about this recently, and I said, think of a, you buy an old house, right? And it's got some rotten wood, and somebody painted it gray, and it needs to needs to be fixed up. It's not to make it a different house. It's to make the original glory of the house come through and that's why the liturgy talks about restoration of the sacred liturgy of Vatican II restoration restoration
1: yeah I would add on to that though Dennis too it's not just for the sake of the house but for the sake of the tenants and the people who live in it you know you get a you move into a house and you know maybe it's an old retired couple who lived in it then and now a family's moving in and so it has to change and so with the liturgy it's not simply restoring it so that it manifests more clearly you know the divine truths of the paschal mystery but also you know uh the the glory of god is uh is man becoming fully alive and so it's it's meant to have this transformative power for the people who participate in it and if it becomes even if it's good in itself if it becomes for for too many people inaccessible then it needs to be accommodated you know where it can be and this was one of the the great principles of uh, sacrosanctum chelium then it needs to Amen.
3: So mm-hmm. we had number one about the rites. We had number two about the word of God, the yes. liturgies duration. Mm-hmm.
1: And how about three? number three? Number three. So this is about, uh, let's see, the texts uh, principally of the order of mass, but it kind of leads into uh, to music as well. It says uh, the texts are that are composed by the church not by the liturgy guys, your Dawson and liturgy director, or, <laughs> or Adam Bartlett. Right. Adam Bartlett, right? The texts or belong to the church, and you know we used to say this a lot when we do those uh, mystical body, mystical voice workshops. You know, the church has been trying to find the right words to uh, to to express the ineffable for you know thousands of years. I mean, she's her compositions have been around for a long time they're hers and so they're to be held it says here in uh, the document number three in highest respect no one may take it upon himself to make changes substitutions deletions or additions mm-hmm. I wonder what they mean by that that
2: kind of sounds like the last line of sacrosanctum right yeah well, no one oh, even a priest yeah, huh? no one yeah, even a
1: priest yeah we hear that a lot so, and so and you can't change
3: the scripture and you can't change the words of the mass itself
1: yeah on your own. own on your on your own. That's right. Um, which you know we again, many of the the not that this is the reason why, but still uh, to to observe that many of the texts of the mass are scriptural in origin. right? So but of course, when you change the words of the mass, you obscure the connection to uh, to the scriptural uh, basis, you know, so and with your and with your spirit. It uh, comes from the letters of St. Paul. So if we're not saying it with your spirit, then we're losing that connection. You know, if we, if we don't say given for you and for many, which are words out of Jesus's mouth and Matthew and Mark, then we're losing the scriptural connection. So, yeah, a real emphasis here on respecting the texts of the mass, not even, Dennis, under the pretense of singing them, can they be changed. And so this is kind of a bridge into singing. Right. And that was the thing that came up with the
3: translation of the current missile, that a lot of people would change the words of the Anus Day often because it didn't fit in the musical notes. They would just try to change them or multiply some things. They're like, nope, don't do that. You have to follow the actual words. And so a lot of the newer musical settings in the new translation are following that, fortunately. Yeah. So, one of the things it talks about, what words to be used, it talks about the entrance and communion antiphons. And you know, Jesse, that Chris and I love antiphons.
2: <laughs> yeah, you guys are pro antiphons, not pro antiphons. That's a good but, uh,
3: one. Ooh, that was a
2: good one, Dennis. I I antiphon work, yeah.
3: and Uncle Fon. And I mm. like them too. But what are we talking about here? It gives the options for what these, and this is what we call an entrance song a lot of the time uh, now. First source, the graduale Romanum. Second one, a simple gradual, which was a shorter version of the um, Latin settings. Um, And some other things that are compiled and approved by the bishops. So it's restating that continuous tradition that the entrance song is not just your favorite hymn from a book, but it normally comes from these places.
1: Yeah. And I I don't remember if this has come up before. It was Adam Bartlett that pointed this out to me, is that there was a a reply to a, uh, to a question, to a dubia or dubium. um, I don't know. One of those two uh, about uh, replacing um, these antiphons with hymns. And this same congregation came out. I don't know if it was in the seventies, I suppose saying, you know, the permission to use hymns, which again, we do have that permission, but in this uh, reply, it said, you know, to substitute a hymn rather than one of these things is to cheat the people. Right. So, and I, kind of thought it it's you know if you went to hear the gospel and you know the the priest or the first reading or whatever read something else besides you know the the scripture would be to cheat the people. well you know the church is speaking biblically with these antiphons too and so to replace them with something that's you know not the composition of you know uh, inspired authors but of uh, musicians, however you know good they may be, it seems to be um, kind of along those same lines. so respect the antiphons.
2: I, I like that uh, analogy that you give about changing the readings and things like that, because, but that's the liturgical text of that particular mass.
3: Mm. Yeah. Right. And often they're either from scripture, they have the profundity of scripture, or they're very profound in themselves. So think about the word became flesh and dwelt among us as an entrance to, song on Christmas Day versus A Little Town of Bethlehem. I love that example, right? A little town of Bethlehem is like it's like treating this town like a cute baby that you're to think is cute and you're talking about it. Okay, it's good as far as it goes, but it's not getting that central question of the incarnation that is the more important question really. Yeah. But does this mean we may never do anything else, Chris? No. In
1: musically? the very next – no, in the letter C, it talks I – I don't know if this is what you have in mind, but new it types is- of – yeah, new types of music can be uh, composed to suit the contemporary spirit, which – anyway, to say, contemporary meaning people who are living in 1970 or 2021. Well, 2020, wherever, whatever year we're living in now. But it says this, that it's up to the bishops to authorize uh, this music, right? So there's supposed to be some Episcopal oversight and it says, um, that the text, melody, rhythm, and instrumentation are suited to the dignity and holiness of the place and of divine worship. Mm-hmm. So, even though it might be accommodated to the people, it also has to respect the fact that this is liturgical music. Uh, it's supposed to be holy and suitable for divine worship. When you hear holy, sacred, goodness of form, <laughs> what do you? What should come to yeah. mind right away? Yeah. Well, like it says that explicitly in the next paragraph. So, Jesse, what does what does that remind you of? Holiness, goodness of form, and true art, Jesse. I don't know. <laughs> when in doubt, just say saying, Jesus. Tralles so Oh, le- le- oh, man. oh yeah. man! So here we Jesus are. Jesus was
3: a good answer. <laughs> Sixty-seven years later, they're still quoting Pius the Tenth's "Moto Proprio Tralles legituni," which was also quoted in Sacrosanctum Concilium. So, a continuous thread of ideas uh,
1: here. Dennis, look at the very last line of uh, Section C, where it talks about the use of uh, instruments. What does mm-hmm. it say? They should uh, prompt devotion and not be too
3: loud and be <laughs> limited in number, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's one of my least favorite things in, on Earth is when there's microphones are up high and they're just screaming away. I like I
1: have to put my fingers in my ears sometimes at Mass. It's crazy. Yeah, well, some some of these... Uh, yeah. Some of these uh, instrumental accompaniments can be so loud that it's, uh, it really smothers the word that's meant right. to uh, support. And remember, the voice
3: is the primary and principal liturgical instrument, right? Because we're saying words to the Father. And so if the musical instruments are drowning out the words, they're, they're undoing the point of what is meant to be done. Yeah. We're not against musical instruments per se. It's just if they're not used liturgically, they're a problem. Yeah. Speaking of words, uh, go to go to letter F. The priest may say a very few words to the congregation at the beginning of Mass and before the readings, the preface, and the dismissal. Which means he can babble on about a movie he saw the night
1: before. Correct, (laughs) Chris? Whatever he says, continues, should be brief and to the point. And thought out ahead ahead of time. (laughs) Thought out ahead of time. (laughs) Right. And then it mentions this thing called uh, a moderator, which I think in some translations is, uh, like in the general instruction, for example, is called a commentator. And I think this was envisioned, I don't know, the history of this ministry. It's maybe in the 50s and the 60s when uh, some of the, I don't know, it was trying to facilitate the people's understanding and their entrance into the mystery. But I like what it says here, even about this moderator or commentator uh, who is to avoid going on and on and say only what is necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's, you know, that's the that's really the 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 character the flavor the features of the roman Rite. you know the the there's just this economy of language and of words that it's not uh what's the word prolix it's yes. not like a liturgy guys podcast that goes on and on and on and on it's what's a Prolix. prolix. It's, yeah
3: oh what it's is short into the point it means efficiency of words uses yeah
2: oh that does not that's not like an efficient word.
1: <laughs> no, prolix doesn't prolix mean going on and on and on? Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, pro. Yeah, yeah like lots of yeah. licks. Got it. <laughs> how many licks? How many licks, how many licks
2: the, does it take to get to the, the center the of a tootsie
3: pop? One, a two, a three, a three. I never understood that commercial when it was a kid. It made no sense to me. I'm like, he bit it. How can they uh, kind of... That's like, the point. That's I know, the point. But I,
1: was, I was too young to pick We'll, up we'll explain subject. this offline. Okay. So anyway,
3: <laughs> the priest has, This whole thing is there are permissions. There are options. There are things to do if you want to bring
1: out the nature of the liturgy. But don't be an idiot. right? Okay. Well, look at the the last paragraph of this section number three. Used intelligently, these faculties afford such broad options that there is no reason for resorting to individualistic creations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So prepare well ahead of time.
2: Okay. I'm very much in love with this document, by the way. (laughs) This this is blowing my mind. I know. Would you
1: do like a listener poll? You know, what is your favorite post-conciliar instruction? Yeah. This is it for me. Pretty good.
3: Hey, are we going to have talk like a liturgist day, Jesse? Should we... Bring that up now. uh
2: Yes, we are going to have talk like a liturgist day. And we don't know what
3: day it is yet, but there's talk like a pirate day, which is September nineteenth. 19th, September nineteenth. 19th. So we want to have a national talk like a liturgist day. Some point. Oh, yeah, you have to say lots of liturgy words. Everybody say trellis us a need make memes? Put it on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. We don't know when it is, but keep your eye out for it. And you'll get some prizes for
2: the best person to talk like a liturgy. <laughs> Man, talk right. like a liturgist. A prolix <laughs> liturgist.
1: Okay,
3: but back to what
2: All we're right, doing here. Back
1: to, okay, number four is about uh, the, the Eucharistic, Eucharistic prayer. Eucharistic prayer, recitation of any part uh, of the Eucharistic prayer by a lesser minister of the or the uh, uh, lesser minister, the assembly, or any individual is verboten. Mm-hmm. Priest alone. And why
3: would this make sense mystagogically and not just legally?
1: Mm, well, you know, the, the priest is praying in the person of Christ, the high priest. And offering That's the head of the body, right? The, yeah, the caputis. Um, yeah, well, it, you know, that line goes on about uh, it, when, when other people join in, it uh, conflicts with the higher archic character of the liturgy. And a hieros, a hierophant, Uh, is someone who shows or reveals sacred things. And the whole church is hierarchical. Everybody in it is participating in one way or another in the priesthood of Christ, but only one person who is in the presider's place is sort of functioning in persona Christi capitis, Mm -hmm. in the person of Christ the head. You know, so uh, to have other, you know, unauthorized priests join in obscures the nature of, of the church and of the priesthood and of Christ Right. And so even though the people are members of that body, mm-hmm. it's the head
3: that speaks to the, to the father. So all the gathering up of the desires and offerings of the people go through the neck, so to speak, and the head <laughs> who is the priest, uh, who is the headship of Christ speaking to the father. And it's so a imagine if you went to the doctor and you had a lot of pains and you couldn't speak with your mouth, but like your liver started screaming "ow" all the time, you know, it's just not very complicated. It's not very good. It's not a good way to,
2: you might need a deliverance prayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: Okay I still got
2: it Yeah Okay
3: So um, there's also some other stuff about authenticity of signs One of them is about bread of wheat And the age old custom of the Latin church That it is unleavened So you can imagine why they'd have to say this Uh, You both know um, Father Lodge's famous story About the raisins don't you I do know that story. It makes me cringe a little. He went out to mass somewhere, and he was the guest priest, and they brought over this raisin bread to use for uh, mass, or at least as he tells the story. And it was in the middle of mass. He couldn't send it back. And so he jokes, and I don't know if it's true, but he would say, this, except for the raisins, is my body. And uh, that was his little joke about uh, this raisin bread they brought over for mass
1: uh yeah well you know they found it necessary All right uh, in light of uh, circumstances to to tell uh, to reemphasize you know what what was to be used uh it talks about uh let's see it's to be made uh let's see um can be broken into parts is to be made in the traditional shape right and so it's it's the the shape it's not supposed to look like a loaf of bread according to liturgical and if there's any sort of, restoration to authenticity it's not to be in this shape but as it relates to the color of bread and the taste of bread and perhaps to the thickness of the host it says uh or actually somebody observed this host means victim doesn't it and so to call unconsecrated breads host is not accurate oh, okay it's, it's bread um let's see bread that tastes of uncooked flour or that becomes uh, quickly so hard as to be inedible is not to be used. But have you guys ever had that? Sometimes uh, these hosts that are used, they taste like kind of pasty, yeah. uncooked.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, back in the day when I first started um, at Mundelein, that was, you know, it was still basically the 90s almost, although it was 2000, uh, year 2000. They had a student group that would make the bread every day for mass, and they were little doughy, crumbly little cubes. And they didn't taste good, and all the crumbs were falling off, and it just didn't work. It wasn't efficient, and it wasn't good. We were so distracted by the, the texture and the flavor that you were more worried about the crumbs falling off your hands than you were able to pray about what you were receiving.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the sign value of everything is uh, is important. But, you know, when you get to the matter in the form of the sacraments, the, the signs that are to be used, if they're to be efficacious signs, which is how the catechism describes sacraments, I mean, it, it, you can't mess around too much. And it, you, you're making unleavened bread. I don't make bread. Any kind of bread uh, is a real skill. Uh, and so it's easy to... Uh, It's easy to mess up. And I I think where the temptation comes in for people, well, if I just add a pinch of this and a dash of that, that that it's easier to make. But it can certainly become illicit and perhaps even invalid. So uh, stick with stick with what works. Okay, good. And, you know, a lot of this is no brainer
3: stuff, right? Just do what the church has always asked. But there are obviously something going on that they think they need a correction. Now, number six is a little different, though, right? It talks about communion under both kinds. It says expresses a more complete sharing by the faithful, but it has limits. And so, they you know, they opened the door to communion under both kinds, both species, but they don't want people to go bonkers with it.
1: Yeah, well, again, it's about the sign value that, you know, the the, the words came out of Christ's own mouth to take and eat and to drink. Uh, and so, you know, from his command, you know, communion under both kinds has been in and out uh, or, or practiced more or less throughout uh, the tradition and you know to kind of restore the the sign value of the mass and the people's participation in the sacrificial meal of the mass there was greater permission for communion under both both kinds and I think now I think from what it says here to what it, the discipline is now, I think there's been some changes with the broadening of the permission, but at least at this point in 1970, it says ordinaries are not to give blanket permission, but rather specify instances where it's to take place. And at letter B it's to be preceded by thorough catechesis. Now this I do know in the, in the front of your missile, there's this document. I don't know who thinks up these titles. It's called something like, um, Directory for distribution of communion under both kinds in the dioceses of the United States of America, and it talks about this necessary catechesis that's supposed to happen beforehand. And I just, I think a lot of that still needs to take uh, to take place. You know, like concomitants, for example, people are supposed to. What is
3: oh. that? Yeah, I
1: don't yeah. know either. What's concomitants, Chris? Oh, uh, concomitants. It's what it means is that. Christ now reigning in heaven is no longer able to be separated his body from his blood. So that what it means roughly is that when the priest says, this is uh, my body, the blood and the soul comes along with it. Oh, I see. So people might
3: think they're not getting the whole Christ if they only receive under one.
1: That's right. So, you know, is the body of Christ in the chalice? Yes. Yes. Do you receive the blood of Christ in a host? Yes. Yes. That's the doctrine of concomitance. But that's just one of six or eight things that even the current norms say before communion of both kinds is to be uh, introduced. This type of catechesis is to go on. People are supposed to know as best we can about transubstantiation, concomitance, proper reverence, and things like that. Does it
2: mention that we have to have at least 12
1: extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion? Uh, yeah, that's that's. I don't remember it doing that. I don't think uh, so, but I'll, <laughs> I'll double check. <laughs> but still, but still, I mean, this at least is something an extraordinary minister of holy communion should know. Is is some of these things, but anyway, back to I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. That's the that's one of the post-post-post uh, conciliar documents. But in this one, it talks about thorough catechesis. Letter C, you're not supposed to pass the chalice uh, one to the other, other things like that. Anything else in that section? Catch your eye, Dennis.
3: Oh, uh, just no. It's just kind of specific detail that it's not. Loaded with lots of uh, new ideas. But it does say, you know, letter F, whatever the manner of distributing, whether who, who you're allowed to do it or whatever it does, it's always to be dignified, devout, and decorous administration. That means fitting and forestalling any danger of irreverence. So this is really, really the big, the big reason for why they're even talking about how you can com- distribute communion under both kinds. And so they want to make sure that it's done properly since it's new and maybe people haven't quite figured out a good way to do it yet. Yeah. We're sort of used to having eight chalices up in the altar in a Sunday mass, but they may not have figured that out at that, you know, 1970. We were okay, here. so finally we're cruising through number seven and eight. Women and children. How did you know that? <laughs> I I pulled it up. Oh, you did. Okay. So women used to be able to do certain things, and then Pius X, you know, said they really shouldn't be in the choir, and they shouldn't be in the sanctuary. So there's been a lot of back and forth. Pius XII gave some you know, loosening of that. And here they're finally letting it down here. Women are allowed to proclaim the readings except the gospel. They can announce the intentions in general intercessions. They can lead the liturgical assembly in singing and play the organ and other instruments. They can read the commentary assisting the people toward better understanding of the right, which we don't really do very often. And then they can do other stuff uh, such as ushering, organizing processions, taking up the yeah. collection. Well, I, don't I don't know, say, how does it strike you if you see a woman as an usher taking up collection? Does it seem odd to you? I find that still a little odd to me because it's unusual still. But
1: given permission here. Yeah, it's not unusual where where I am anyway. What right. what about, what what's one thing it, it explicitly says they are not to do? Right at the top. Read the gospel? No, 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 top. Go <laughs> Serving the priest at the altar. Oh yeah, they're not yeah. allowed to be altar servers at this point. Yeah, right. And so we should do a podcast on uh, altar servers uh, sometime. But yeah, I mean the the thinking is, is that um, I suspect that you know the servants, you know those who are assisting the priests are uh, you know traditionally uh, acolytes or those who had been in formation for. Uh, holy Orders, and, which is uh, 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 in the in the person of Christ, is uh, is, is a male ministry, and so uh, the norm is that, uh, and even still today, I think it's the bishop who is, has to give permission for his diocese to allow female altar servers. I could stand to confirm that, but yeah, that would be the one thing that uh, women were not to do uh, still in 1970. Right. I
3: remember in the 90s when that permission was given and John Paul II, and there was a lot of discussion about it uh, before that. Yeah. Okay. What else? Sacred vessels, investments should be treated with proper care. Uh, kind of obvious stuff there.
1: Well, yeah, it, it's it, it's obvious common sense stuff, but it was happening all over the place. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't so obvious. And remember, remember Cardinal Lorenzo would always say that common sense is not very common. <laughs> Uh, that uh, <laughs> that's that hilarious. These, these uh, vessels are to be of high quality and durable. Anything that's trivial or commonplace is not to be used. Right. At this point, everybody was in love with the uh, terracotta ceramic uh,
3: chalice. At this time, and nuns were making them by the dozen and selling them in their gift shops and stuff. You can still find the you know people give priests all kinds of gifts on their <laughs> ordination and. Somebody undoubtedly gives them a crystal chalice or a ceramic chalice and then they sort of put it on the shelf in their office and never use it. But um, they they were seen as commonplace as authenticity, right? If it looked like the people made it with their hands, it was considered authentic. But we're talking about sacramentalizing the heavenly Jerusalem and not just what people would do. How about number? letter C there? The vestment common to ministers of every rank is the alb. I find that very interesting. Do you? Yeah. Why? Especially in traditional communities, people think that uh, servers have to, have to wear cassock and surplice, or that, you know, singers uh, just wear their regular clothes. But the alb is actually th- common to every rank of every minister, or unless you think that's just people in the rank of toward ordination.
1: No, I, I, th- I don't think it is. I think that little white garment that's put on after your baptism is, uh, to, m- to my way of thinking, that's basically a little alb. Alb means white and little junior there puts on an alb after uh, after he's baptized at uh, 3 weeks old and then at the end of his life when he's rolled into the to the church he's met at the church doors and he's placed uh, what's placed on him is another alb you know this white funeral pall so i think uh, you know the the and surplus seems to be a specifically clerical garb but the alb seems to be a ministerial and even a, a christian garb but you know what you were saying before dennis about Women bringing up the collection. This is one where I think people would be, I don't know, alarmed at is that, you know, if if my mother came out to to do the reading vested in an alb, I think would be more of a distraction than uh, than a help. But uh, yeah, the alb is the is the vesture for for all ministers. Well, she as came well. out in a cassock surplice and surplice. might even be Correctly, sometimes oh. you do
3: hear that where priests will say, "Well, we have altar boys and altar girls. We just want to make sure they're vested properly, and they put the altar girls in cassock and surplice as well." But I haven't really. I really have seen that putting yeah, clerical uh, clerical attire. You know, it says here the abuse is repudiated of celebrating mass with only a stole over the monastic cowl Kal- or. Uh, clerical garb to say nothing of street clothes. And Mm -hmm. I remember this when I was a a Dominican uh, novice. The the Dominicans wear this habit, right? It's a white habit. So basically it looks like an alb. If you follow the law strictly, you had to put an alb over your habit and then a stole over that and a chasuble over that. And it was a lot of stuff. And there was some discussion about whether you should do that or not. And more observant people did and other people didn't. Uh, But it's right here that uh, an alb is not the same as a religious habit and street clothes, of course, are... You know, hmm. not enough. with just. A, is this
2: is this talking about um, wearing not wearing a chasuble, or is that not what this is talking about? Uh, not
3: even that point. They're talking about putting a stole over your religious habit or your okay, uh, okay. street clothes.
1: Yeah, or street clothes.
3: <laughs> I do remember, <laughs> you know, that even when I first came to Mundelein, <laughs> sometimes the priests. When I first came to Mundelein, this is a long time ago, twenty years plus. They. Uh, Some of the priests would just have their regular clothes with the stole on at Mass. And you're just like, oh man, this is the 90s. Yeah, still it is. Yeah.
1: What about number nine? So we get to the end here. Places of worship.
3: Yeah. Celebrated as a rule in place of worship. Apart from cases of real need, a celebration outside of church is not permitted. Mm. What about John Paul as a young man celebrating Mass in the mountains with his uh, college students?
1: Yeah, well he probably had I, permission right yeah, I so. <laughs> well you know if if there were a church right there and they said let's just do it outside today because right, it's cool that, would, yeah. that, would, be, that right. would be clearly uh you know not according to Hoyle but I mean, if there is there's no church anywhere then I guess that's a little different right yeah. and so, so this, no church nearby would be real need yeah if at all possible the celebration should not take place in a dining room or on a dining room table how about Whoa. that you would
3: think that a dining room table would be better than just you know some Rock outside, but I I guess they're worried that it would confuse the sacred meal with the everyday meal. Strangely enough, when you read lots of things in the the seventies, they're all like, "Oh, this is the table of the Lord, and it should look like your domestic celebration." And so it's it's amazing how precious. I was just going
2: to say that they should also say, "Don't put a dining room table in the church."
3: Well, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's there's an intellectual prehistory to how that happened in the seventies and eighties. It's wrong, but there were people arguing for
1: that. Obviously, they hadn't read this. Yeah, we all right. Well, now 11? we're cruising to the end here. Yeah, number eleven. Just a couple of things there. It talks about translations, and you know this, this has been really a I I don't know probably the big story over the last fifty years is how to translate a liturgical text into a suitable type of uh, vernacular. But here, so what were they thinking in nineteen seventy? So in the first paragraph, they talk uh, about uh, the, the intense effort for accurate translations and editions of the liturgical books. Uh, let's see the third paragraph. In this matter, it is advisable to proceed without haste, enlisting the help not only of theologians and liturgists, but of people of learning and letters. Then the translations will be documents of tested beauty, their grace, balance, Elegance, richness of style and language will endow them with the promise of lasting use. Uh,
3: If only this had happened, at least in the first edition.
1: Well, I think it did happen, though, in some ways. I I, I suppose it it depends how you look at it, Dennis. You know, now looking back 50 years, it seems that, yeah, you know, they, they wanted translations quickly. But over the course of 50 years... They did end up with these translations that uh, are beautiful and graceful and balanced and elegant and rich. And hopefully they'll be with us uh, for some time.
2: Hey, uh, Chris, I bet Dennis is going to be really mad at you.
1: Why is that?
3: Because we skipped number 10. Oh, what was number 10? What did number 10 say? Ooh. Oh, worthy places of worship? Yeah, okay, fine. Oh, but... Yes. What does it say there? Oh, yeah, I wow. It says arrangements begun in recent years as temporary have tended in the meantime to take on a permanent form. In other words, Oh, Vatican II says we can face say mass same facing the people. Let's just get a little flimsy table over here. And they're they're starting to become
0: the norm mm-hmm. just because they've been mm-hmm. for a long
3: time, but that they need to be uh, brought to what aesthetic grace, smoothness and dignity of liturgical celebration. So, uh, that's happened in the last few years, too. Most people yeah. have gotten rid of their 1970s improvised
1: altars. This is not quite the same thing, but I think it happens from time to time, too, that a place would move into the gym while the church you know, project would get started and underway. And after a while, people just you know, this gym's not so bad after all. Well, that's what (laughs) Kevin Thornton told
3: us that when in the heyday of the 60s, 70s, they had mass in the gym just because it was cool. And he used to go to the gym mass, even when the church was open, (laughs) just because he liked the kind of casual, haven't done it before uh, atmosphere of this. And then, Mm -hmm. then he got smart and just stopped doing that. So,
1: All right. So there's number 10, 11 is on translations. 12 is on uh, authority to uh, confirm and approve translations. Uh, and 13 is kind of the conclusion. Any thoughts on the conclusion there at 13? 13? Well, what does it say? It must be remembered that liturgical reform
3: decided on by the council affects the universal church. It requires study and meetings and practice. It has to become vital, touch the soul and meet its needs. So there you go. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the idea. The whole point right. of any restoration of the liturgy is not just to do something different. It's to make it more efficacious, more effective, better at transforming us into... Sons and daughters of, of God and more like Christ. And uh, if some kind of secular spirit or imperson- personal improvisation gets in the way, then it's not the right thing to do. And if, um, what does it say there here? Uh, they'll prepare for the flowering spring expected from this reform, which looks to the needs of the age, age and repudiates the secular as
1: arbitrary and what, Chris? Lethal. Lethal to itself. It yeah, that's, the, oh. that's the last word of this document, repudiating the secular and the arbitrary as lethal to the liturgy.
2: Now we didn't talk about this, but I'll, although Pope Paul VI didn't write this, this was all in unison with what he was thinking, which well, I think was pretty. Well, that's right. what the last
3: sentence says. It's he approved yeah. it and he requested it,
2: and uh boom. Mm-hmm. But that that might shock some people that he was, you know, this adamant about every single detail that we've gone over these last two podcasts.
3: Yeah, Paul VI is an interesting character because he was all uh, pro-liturgical reform. And I think in some sense he saw a lot of stuff going on and had to kind of try to rein it in. And, you know, John Paul was doing the same thing for a long time. Do what the council says. Do what the council says. Do what the council says. And that's what some of the post-post-conciliar documents are all about as well.
1: What it reminds me of, too, is, you know, Pope Benedict would talk about the virtual council versus the real council or, you know, the spirit of the council. And he says, you know, the the spirit of the council is found in the texts of the council. And, you know, most of us are led to believe that, you know, the spirit of 1970 was, you know, kind of a free for all experiment. Do what you like. But when you actually go to the text. Right now, you might think it was a free-for-all spirit, uh, you know, and you thought that was a good thing, or you thought that was a bad thing. But in point of fact, the text itself says just the contrary to that, uh, you know, so-called uh, uh, arbitrary spirit. Read the text. Read the text. Do
3: what it says. Read the text. I don't know why I made that sound like a ghost, but ooh, Ebenezer. Yes. Reed you sound text. like a, a spirit, like yeah.
2: a spirit of the
1: liturgy. Oh yeah, you're the, I'm a, you're the I'm ghost the up- of uh, <laughs> sacrosanctum cecilian. <path. laughs> can
2: we give a quick? That always reminds me, and we never talk about this, but I want to give a quick shout out to Claire Gilligan, really, who because she made that Clue game, didn't oh, she? Oh yeah,
3: she adapted so, the game Clue to be liturgical Clue.
2: And one of the one of the like means of uh, one of like the weapons was this was the spirit of the liturgy, right? Was that true? I think or, or so. Or the spirit yeah. of Vatican too. That's yeah. what it was.
3: Yeah, there was a little tiny thurible I remember and candlestick, you know, so mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, anyway, Paul VI, good for you. Saint. Yep. He's Saint or is he so blessed? He's Saint, hasn't he? He's saint, saint. He's Saint. Saint Paul, saint. Paul six. Santos. Pray for us. Thank you for this document.
1: Yeah. Good job.
2: Hey, um, I would like to do one more uh, liturgy and donuts episode. If Lars that's right so with you guys. Cute.
1: Definitely cute. Is I'm, that okay, Is that that okay with pretty, you, Chris? I'm pretty cute, yes. <laughs> Not you. Nobody listens for you. Oh, 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 right, right, right. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, let's try that.
2: All right. Lars, what's your favorite part about Mass?
0: Eating donuts.
2: Mm, donuts. You eat donuts in church?
0: Yeah, when it's done. That's good. That's my favorite part of the church.
2: Donut. No
0: thanks. Do you have any fruit?
3: It says purple stuff inside. Purple is a fruit.
2: And now, a new episode of Liturgy and Donuts.
1: Hey, Lars. Hi, Papa. You were telling me yesterday that your leg hurts. Yep. How'd you hurt your leg?
0: Well, I uh, we were sliding down by our creek, bed by our house, uh, down by our the creek, and then we I hit down a rock down mm-hmm. the hill.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's was hurting you a lot on Sunday. That's yes. yesterday. Today's Monday. Do you remember what I told you at Mass you could do
0: with mm, your yes. leg? I could sit.
1: <laughs> you could sit. Yeah, you didn't have to kneel. We didn't let you. We didn't make you kneel during Mass like usual. I told you you could sit. But remember when we were at that part of the Mass where Father is pouring the, the wine and the water into the chalice? Yes. You know, what do we usually do at that part of the Mass?
0: Uh, we usually... uh. Neil. Yeah, but Dan.
1: We do, but what do you do with your heart then?
0: Oh, uh, we give it to Jesus.
1: Yeah. So what are we supposed to do?
0: Uh, give it to Jesus. One.
1: When... Yeah, but I mean, you, like, we don't—you don't take your heart out of your body, no. right? But what are the th- we we those things? So how do you give your heart to Jesus? How do you put your heart into the chalice with His?
0: Uh. You, like, you pray for, like, the stuff, and then you, like, let it go up to Jesus.
1: Mm -hmm. So, like, what are some of the things you put in the chalice? What are some of the things that are in your heart that you put into the chalice? Love. Yeah, but love of what?
0: Love of my family my cousins and Jesus. Yeah,
1: what else do you put in there? I mean... You're good at. You're really good at this. I ask you because we talk on the way to mass or on the way back. What are you going to give to Jesus today? And what are some of the things you usually say?
0: I usually say. uh uh, Dominic and Benedict and the priest who's doing, taking them to Kenya
1: and the people at the college. Yeah. So Dominic, your brother, and Benedict, your cousin, are going to see uh, Father Frederick and Kenya, and they're going to work with him, and they're applying for colleges. So when we put stuff in the chalice, we put real specific things, right? We don't just put love up there, but we put love of Dominic or of Mama or Father Zachary who cares for us, right? Or
0: our cousins. Or our
1: cousins. But yesterday at Mass, when your leg was hurting, what did I tell you to do with your leg?
0: I give it up to Jesus.
1: <laughs> so you're to put your hurt leg up in the chalice. It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Why do you think Jesus wants your hurt leg?
0: Uh, to just try to make it feel better.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you think about all those things that make you to be who you are and the things that make me to be who I am and those things that make Zelly, your sister, to be what she is right she's more than just a, a person like you're more than just a person like you're a little guy who's seven years old and you don't have any front teeth and you have a hurt leg and you love your brother and you're gonna miss him who's gonna go visit Kenya and all those things like that it's all those specific things that really make Lars to be who Lars is so what God wants is all of those little things, like your hurt leg and your love for your brother and your Valentines that you uh, got from your girls and you gave to your girlfriends and things like that. I did not uh, give
0: any. because I didn't have time to
1: make any. Oh, yeah, that's probably for the best. Anyway, well, just remember that when you go to Mass and you see Father putting that wine in the water into the chalice. You put all those little things that are in your heart and you give all of those to him because what happens is that Jesus kind of takes them himself and joins his own sacrifice and he gives all those to God and the things that are bad in you or Papa or whatever, he burns away and those things that are hurt in you and Papa and others, he fixes and those things that are good in me and you, he even makes better. So it's an awesome thing. Anything else? Anything else? Okay, alright, talk to you next time Now that's a podcast
3: The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake at Aramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College